So I thought the best thing to do is, before we go into the Gospel of John, which you have on your outline, we're going to go first to Genesis, and we lay the groundwork where this word actually first is found. Scholars normally, when they, when they study things in the Bible, they say, well, uh, a good beginning is uh, what they call the first mention law. Where is it first mentioned in the Bible? Can you find out where it is? Well, in Genesis, we are going to see, if you go with me to chapter 22, we're going to see where that word is found the first time. While there are implications, that means indications maybe, a better word, uh, that has to do with worship, could be earlier on when we learned last week when Noah got out of the ark, what did he do first? He built an altar and he put a sacrifice on, sacrifice God, that's what he understood. Uh, but the word worship is not mentioned there. It just he built an altar and he sacrificed unto God. So in Genesis chapter 22, we see the famous story revealed where Abraham is called by God to uh, go and do something which Abraham did not expect to hear from God. I was totally, how many of you have ever heard something either from the Bible or God speaking to you to your heart and you did not expect it? Here is Abraham. So it says, after these things, I'm, I'm reading in first one, God tested Abraham. Listen, tested Abraham. And he said to him, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. See how God says to Abraham, whom you love. This is the dearest thing you have, Abraham. All the promises I've made to you, the covenant relations I entered into with you, are locked up in Isaac. And I want you to take him and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young man, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and do what? And worship. How did Abraham know that he's going to worship God? That's not what God said, go and worship me. He said, take your son Isaac, whom you love, and do something which you don't want to do. Your whole life is wrapped up in Isaac. And I want you to go and offer him there as a burnt offering. He never said a worship service, a burnt offering. Abraham goes and he speaks to his servants and says, the boy Isaac and I are going to keep on going. And the purpose why we're going is to worship. And we will come back to you. He didn't say, and I will come back to you. We will come back to you. Is there something in, in Abraham's heart 
which he speaks but does not understand. I want you to see this. There is not a single guitar mentioned in here, not a keyboard mentioned, no backup voices mentioned, no lead singers mentioned. All the things which we in the Western culture consider to be worship is not found here. Could that indicate that maybe the word worship in the Bible has a lot more to do with other things than just music? Could it just be? Well, I think it is. Because the Bible tells us, Abraham took the wood in verse 6, and the burnt offering, and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, My father, and he said, Here I am, my son. Can you hear in that conversation that incredible relationship, that love, deep relationship between Abraham and Isaac? This is not, this is not a dysfunctional family here. This is a dad who cherishes that son, Isaac. He would give everything. He would, he would go on the altar and sacrifice himself rather than his son. That's a relationship. All these things are written down by the storytelling person here. How incredibly close that relationship is. And he said, here I am, my son. And he said, behold, the fire and the wood. But where is the lamb for burnt offering? So Isaac in his mind believes that they are going to get it to sacrifice something. But he did not expect that he is the center of the whole worship. Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. How many would have to say, Abraham did hardly believe what he said? That's what he wanted to believe. And when they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Think for a second. Put yourselves into the shoes. You just traveled with your dearest son where all the promises God has made to you are locked in. You built the altar. Can you imagine the thoughts that go to Abraham's mind as he starts building those, get those kind of pieces Stones laid all on top in such a way that it's leveled a little bit higher than the ground level. And probably Isaac helped him. And then he said, Isaac, come on over here. He ties his hands and feet and lays them on there. What do you think went through Isaac's mind? This is a real story. This actually happened. We read sometimes the Bible and we think just, you know, this is like Hollywood. It's a script. This is not a script. This is history. Look at verse 10. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. He was ready to do what God demanded from him. And thus he has his hand up an angel reached out his hand. He didn't talk to him. It would have been too late. 
the angel physically reached and grabbed his hand in the last second and was stopping Abraham. And the angel, the Lord, called to him from heaven, said, Abraham, Abraham, and said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. The angel there is a discussion who that could be. But it is in personal pronoun later, now I know that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Yahweh himself speaks here. The I am, which we learned on, on Wednesday nights. The great I am. So, would you say that we probably need to reevaluate the word worship, just based upon this story? And that just lays the groundwork. So I want to lay the groundwork for you to really understand what's going on here, because there's a whole history wrapped into that word worship. I put it up for you, uh, what I think worship could mean. So I give you kind of the uh, upfront a little bit an indication where we're heading here. Worship has its focus on what we do with our lives. Let me say it again. Worship is not about so much about music and singing, it's a part of it, but worship has its focus on what we do with our lives. So that has huge implications. First of all is, you, you live seven days a week, don't you? But some people live like they only live Sunday morning for two hours. And then the rest is on a breathing machine. Because you come to church and you go, I'm going to go and worship the Lord on Sunday morning, correct? So how dare do they have a service longer than an hour? That would be crazy. So, so you're actually only living for God an hour a week? That could not possibly mean this, could it? So... It's a 24-7 focus, what we do with our lives. You say, how did you get that? Go with me quickly to Romans chapter 12. The Apostle Paul understanding all these implications from the Old Testament, and he wraps it up like this. In verse 1 and 2, he says, I appeal to you, therefore, this is not, I suggest, he literally begs the church. And he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice. What did Abraham lay on that altar? A living sacrifice. I appeal to you to do that, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Have you ever gone to a church and people come out and say, oh no, that was real worship. You could sense the Holy Spirit there. Did you just read what spiritual worship is? Biblically speaking, did you just get that? Would you agree with me that the church has a lot to learn about what worship is? 24-7, what we do, every thought we have, every action we take, where we are involved in, how we interact with brothers and sisters, how we interact in the world, how we talk, all these things are called a part of worshiping God. 
All of it. It's a living sacrifice. It's laying things on the altar, which we, if you love to gossip, lay it on the altar. It's a tough. Yeah, it's tough. It's a living sacrifice. Don't we like juicy stuff? Don't we like to know what the neighbor does? Don't we like to read on Facebook and Twitter, whatever you guys are on, just to figure out what's going on? Lay it on the altar. Lay it on the altar. It's, an, it's acceptable to God, and it's a part of our spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world. The things I just mentioned, many other things, is actually what the world is doing. But be transformed, and here Paul is leading us into the step that will get us there, so we understand the spiritual worship. He said, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Listen, worship cannot be disconnected from what you understand. And the understanding comes from the biblical text as God reveals himself, and it is being processed to something we call the mind, which God has given us as a gift which most of us think it's a waste of time to activate. We need to use that mind to understand things. And it says that by the testing, you may discern what is the will of God. You're not going to get up in the morning and you know everything. You've got to test it. What's the testing ground? You've got it in your hands. That's not what the preacher says. Don't take my word for it. Open the book. That's the testing ground. What is good and acceptable and perfect. There's a lot of stuff that's going under the name of worship that is not good. That is not acceptable to God. It's more than in the flesh, but people love it. It's something maybe we do because, well, the church down the road is jam-packed with people who dance and shout and for show, and they want to be a part of that. And so I'm going and want to do the same thing. No, maybe God has an entirely different purpose for you and me, because our focus is what we do with our lives, 24-7. That's our focus. So keep that in mind. John R. W. Stott, a commentator, theologian, said this, Christian's belief, he didn't say he agrees, it's just a Christian's belief, that true worship is the highest and noblest activity of which man, by the grace of God, is capable. And he obviously goes into the arena of being there to be willing to look at your entire life, whatever you do, and consider that to be worship. Chuck Swindle, which I quote quite often because I like, he has the ministry Insight for Living, and I always think what a blessing he has been to the church as a whole because he has so much insight when it comes to living. So it's not just abstract. So there's nothing wrong with quoting those people who have gone before us and have written these things down, and he's still alive. He's over 80 years old, still preaching, by the way. So, still writing. So this is what he said in his study Bible. That's in his new study Bible that came out uh, regarding worship. He says, It is attributing supreme worth to God, who alone is worthy of it. When we worship, that's what we're doing. Attributing supreme worth. The purpose of the church is to cultivate worshipers. See that? The purpose of the church is to cultivate worshipers. 
It isn't a place to make business contacts or to go to check something off the weekly list or to bring your kids so that they get something out of it. No, it's a place to learn about our God so that our worship and the understanding of him becomes increasingly deeper or more meaningful. It's a place where we give him our praise and our gratitude. Why is worship so important? Because it turns our full attention to the only one worthy of it. Well said, isn't it? So this is the reason why our church is uh, saying, bring your children into the sanctuary. Well, they are fidgety. They cannot listen. They go to school, they're five, six, seven years old, and they give them adult material. And we parents say, okay, well, there's nothing we can do about it. Then we come to church, we say, the children should not hear what's going on, what adults can hear about the Word of God. Who in the world is coming up with these ideas. You, know, you as parents, when you come here, and when we worship the Lord together in songs first, and then through the Word of God, the way you respond to the Word of God, the way you respond to the words in singing, is one of the best lessons you can teach your children. They're not going to learn it in the nursery. And you know you can only sing Kumbaya so long in the Sunday school. You sooner or later need to move on. So this is an educational thing that goes through the mind of the people. So we renew our mind every time when we come in here. So you parents or adults, the children see and hear things. What's going on, good or bad? And you can make a huge difference in their lives. Wouldn't it be nice if the church would be filled with people they are absolutely genuine? And the children look at these adults and say, there is something special there. That's what I want to be. But in today's culture, it's not that easy to find. So, let's look at what is true worship. Well, part of the answer is found in the root meaning of worship. If you would have lived when Shakespeare was around, you know, and the King James Version was put together, uh, you would have found worth-ship. W-O-R-T-H, worth, and then ship. Meaning that worshiping God, we are assigning to him the true worth, just as Chuck Swindle said. That's where that word comes from. So there are a few questions which you can ask this morning, so you get a little bit of an idea. And um, I want to set three questions in motion, and then we're going to look at it. Okay. Who can worship God? It's a loaded question. You say everyone. Well, uh, we're going to look at that. Where can one worship God? Everywhere. And how does one worship God? Okay. Well, let's see what the Master says. Let's go to John chapter 4. All of us know the story. Jesus is meeting the woman in Samaria. Let's quickly put the map on the screen. i show you where that went. You can see it on the right-hand side on your screen. This is the map where Jesus traveled. Jesus was down in Jerusalem. And normally, the Jewish people 
These are the real Jews, what they call. They went over to Jericho, crossed the Jordan River, you see down the east, and they went up north until they bypassed the region of Samaria, and then went just before it came to the Sea of Galilee, they went across the Jordan River again and took a western and then went up to Capernaum where Jesus had his headquarters. So that's where they normally traveled. But this time, Jesus is traveling the straight. Not because he wanted to have a shortcut, but the Bible tells us, John is revealing to us, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again. Here is a little indication. John is writing that for you and me to understand that Jesus did a lot of wonderful things, signs and wonders and miracles happened, and obviously it cut the attention of the Pharisees a little bit too early. And so the attention was too much on him, and Jesus left the area because he knew his time was not yet. How often did he go and disappear from the folks? Because they were about ready either to stone him or to crown him. And neither one was yet the time to do. So he left. And he knew that no Pharisee would dare put his foot on the ground of Samaria. That would have polluted that person. So he was safe and sound. So he goes to Samaria. That's John is laying that out for you and me. The Bible says he had to pass to Samaria. That indicates that John knows that the Holy Spirit is telling Jesus where to go. Remember Jesus said, I do nothing unless the Spirit tells me. Okay. So he passes through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. That's noontime. In the Jewish, they had four slots of six hours per day. So that's noon. There are a lot of things in that story which we maybe could lay out first before we go into it. The historical background is important, I believe. Originally, the 12 types of the Hebrews, they came all out of the land of Egypt, correct? And so they came across the Jordan. By the way, they crossed the Jordan pretty much at the same place. See that, Jericho? That's where they came into the promised land. And they went in there, and eventually they had what God promised, a king. Well, they had first a king uh, that didn't do too well, King Saul. Then they had the second king, King David. David did much better, man after God's own heart. And, uh, and then David appointed Solomon to be the third king of Israel. And after Solomon died, there was civil war. They were fighting. And so 10 tribes on the northern region broke away and said, we are not going to submit to the crown of King David, the household of King David. So, and we're going to take the title Israel. Interesting. So we take the title Israel, so it became the kingdom of Israel. On the south, there were still two tribes, Benjamin and Judah. And they became what we know as the Jews, the kingdom of Judah. These are the ones we know as the Jews. That's where the name comes from, Jewish. So, well, they didn't do too well, as we learned last Sunday. God knew that none of them keeps the covenant. 
and uh, they start worshipping other gods. And the Syrian, the neighbors, saw that they weakened themselves. It is interesting that the enemies of God's people observes God's people very, very gently and yet analyzing it and discerning that they are getting weaker. Why do they get weaker? Because God withdraws from them. And so they watched Israel getting weaker and weaker. And so they eventually descend upon it, Assyria, descends upon Israel, and it takes all these people captive. If you read the history in the Bible, you recognize that when Israel got captured, they, they put 90% of all people in other places. They took them out of the land. Why? They wanted to breed them out of existence. That's why the word intermarrying, intermarrying shows up over and over and over and over again. And then they brought the Assyrians into the remnant that was still in Israel. And they had obviously, you know, no male there anymore because they either killed them or brought them into captivity. So they brought Assyrian people in there. And so they literally bred the Israelites out of existence. There was no pure lineage anymore. Keep that in mind. So Judah watched all these things happening to the south, okay? And they said, well, you know, at least we are much better than they. We are the pure ones. That's why God took them. Well, a hundred years later, Nebuchadnezzar from Babylon, that's a new empire that came into power, came and took them out and brought them into captivity. This woman, who is going to be at the well here with Jesus, knows all these things. These people know the history. If you don't know that history, you don't understand the discussion that's going on between Jesus and that woman. And eventually that discussion comes down to one thing. Where do we worship? We hear a lot of sermons about the woman at the well, and who she was, characteristical, and what she did. But these are all side notes. How many of you know, your life, what you do in your life, is a side note compared to whom you worship. And thank God for it. Because if you, the way you live, is the major thing in your relationship with God, how many of you know, we're doomed, we're done. It's who do you worship? It's always the question. So once they get into captivity, we know that Jeremiah the prophet was still in the land while the people were in Babylon. All the kingly lineage is gone. Jeremiah preaches, by the way, Jeremiah 7. You should read that chapter this afternoon. It's powerful. That chapter is talking about Jeremiah telling them the reason why they end up in captivity is because they worship other gods. Did they like what Jeremiah said? No, they didn't like him at all. But he spoke the truth. So then eventually after seven years of captivity, they come back. Ezra comes back. 
to rebuild the temple, and Nehemiah comes back to rebuild Jerusalem, the walls, correct? So then we find two people who are leaders, who happen to be Samaritans, Sennacherib and Tobiah, and they want to hinder these guys to build the temple. Why? Well, they, they cannot go down to Jerusalem. They don't want to be part of that temple rebuilding. They have decided that they're going to serve another God at another place. And they build a temple at Mount Gerasim as a counter-temple to Jerusalem. So we have 12 tribes of Israel, 10 going to Mount Gerasim, and 2 are going to Jerusalem. They're fighting with each other. There's civil war going on for 200 years between those two things, those two nations. Brothers, fighting brothers. How about that? Pretty great tensions, correct? What was the fight all about? Where do we worship? So let's go and listen to the conversation between Jesus and the woman. This is the background. Jesus obviously knows all this. And the woman, who is a Samaritan woman, knows the relationship or the dysfunctional relationship between Samaritans and Jews. And Jesus goes rise into enemy's territory. Okay, he's a Jew. He's the king of the Jews. And he goes and walks to that Samaritan territory. And he ends up in Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Why Jacob's well was there? That was stuck 2,000 years earlier. By the way, for, just for your information... That well is still there today. After 4,000 years, it's still there. So the Bible says, A woman from Samaria came to draw water. And Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? And then John inserts that thing, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. John did not deny that. He said Jews have absolutely no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God, and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from, from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock? How many would have to say, this woman knows their history? She goes with Jesus and drags him into a history lesson. She doesn't know to whom she's talking to. So the disciples are not there. 
that I, I must assume that Jesus told this story when they were gone, what happened to the disciples afterwards. And he wrote it down. Remember, they were not there. So they're going for food. John understood the custom of those days. Women generally don't come to the well during the day. They came early in the morning because it was hot during the day. And scholars uh, would all, pretty much all would agree that this woman came at noon at a time when nobody else was at the well because she was a social outcast in that community because of her lifestyle. So she shows up and she meets a man at the well. This is a woman who has so far met men who only used her as an object. Look at the difference. Jesus is going to look at that woman and want to, get, want to get her away from that lifestyle to give her life. To give her life. Christians look entirely different at these things than the world does. So, the timing is crucial here. Jesus appealed to the woman six times, if you go to that story very analytically. And every time he appealed to her in a certain area, she attempted to deflect the discussion. I want you to see that. When Jesus asked her kindly for a drink, her response was defensive, wasn't it? And she immediately brings the difference and the animosity between Jews and Samaritans into the play. Okay? We would call that today an ethical division. Ethnicity plays a role here, immediately, and she knows it. What are you doing asking me for a drink? That's what she says. You, a Jew, don't you know, you're the guys who despise us because I'm a no-Jew woman? And as a woman, by the way, why do you talk to a woman? Jews don't talk to women. Certainly not to Samaritans. Indirectly, this woman is hurting, and she said, you know, you can't come here to Samaria and sit here at our well and just think with a few talks you're going to somehow bridge the gap of hundreds of years of animosity. Not going to go that fast. Who do you think you are? How did Jesus react? If you really knew who you were talking to, you would be asking me for a drink. What would have you and I been doing if a woman would have attacked us from a historical background just like this? Oh, absolutely. We would have given her a lesson on our history, correct? Remember, I bring you all this back to that connection our lifestyle is worship. Jesus knows where the worth is. The woman looks at herself as absolutely worthless in the eyes of God. She knows. Jesus said she is a woman made in God's image. He's going to bring that worship aspect into worship. Look how he reacts. The woman comes back sarcastically. Hey, man, you don't even have anything to draw water. 
Do you think you're kidding me? I mean, every day. You're just a traveler coming to you. have no idea how deep that well is. I don't want you to miss the intelligence of that woman. She's not a dummy. She even has a sense of humor, I think. How many of you know people who are used as objects on the street are street smart? That woman plays that out beautifully. How did Jesus react is the question here. He simply bypasses her sarcasm and switches over to her spiritual need. Have you ever had a discussion with people who are desperate in their condition but always sidetrack when you want to bring them the spiritual truth? They always go somewhere else. Jesus knows his whole purpose why he's there is to restore that woman. So, this woman needed new life because sin has totally destroyed her life. So the woman was not really living. Listen carefully. People are in that kind of lifestyle. People are on drugs. People are addicted to stuff that destroys them. They don't have a life. You only exist. You don't live. Churches are filled with people. They grew up in church. They only exist. They don't have a life. You might can identify with that woman. She only existed. She really had no life. She had nothing to look forward to to live. I hold down for you, Jesus used the element of water as a metaphor. It's a metaphor. It's not about water. To describe a spiritual reality. Something that would meet not just a need of the moment, but the need for all eternity. This is the discussion here in verse 15. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Did she understand it? This is not uncommon what this woman does. It's still in our time. She's deliberately avoiding the real issue. People often avoid talking about spiritual matters because how many of you know physical needs are easier to satisfy? See, this is the reason why the church is always involved in taking care of people's physical needs. This is so much easier. There are so many rich people, they don't raise children in the home. They just throw money at the children. They just give them what they want. This is so much easier than actually equipping the children to live a godly life in, the, in this world. This woman is no different. She, ha- she, it, she has that illusion that if she gets what she wants, she's going to be satisfied. Well, she finds out soon that this is not the key. People avoid spiritual discussions. When you and I get together, people avoid spiritual discussions because they are too tame, they are too painful for them personally. That's why they avoid it. How many of you would avoid anything that is painful? If you can, sure you want to. 
So when you are going to talk spiritual things with people, this is painful for people who grew up in church but played the game all their lives. This is very painful because that does not stroke the skin. That goes right underneath the skin. And they say, well, been there, done that, I want to hear nothing. Ever heard that? They want to avoid that at all cost. This woman wanted to avoid any spiritual thing at all cost. Why? And here is the key, my friends. Listen carefully to this. People have learned to cope with the hopelessness. Let me say it again. People have learned to cope with the hopelessness. They don't want anyone upsetting the delicate balance. They have worked on it for so long that they can cope and somehow survive. And when you and I come with the spiritual tooth, you're going to take that mask off and you go to the real issue. People who learn to cope with the problems will never solve the problems. Jesus never came to give us enough strength to cope with our problems. If you have an alcohol problem and you cope with that, listen, this is not the way we are doing it. Jesus came to set you free. He's a deliverer. All the words we have studied over the last two months are all going in the same direction. Jesus is not an event. He is a person. He is the Savior. He's the one who sets us free. He doesn't give us strength to cope and mask the problems which we have. He's coming to solve the problems. And this all is connected with worship. Because if we learn to cope with problems and we mask it, that's where we give our worship to. That becomes our biggest worth in life. When I have a problem in the family and I can handle it, I go for drugs. That's my worship element. If I come home and my wife constantly has something to say about it's negative and I try to cope and I get alcohol, that's my worship element. That's what we use. We try to cope with it. We don't want to go to Jesus. Jesus did not let this woman go. Believe me, if she would have had a camel there, she would have hopped up the camel and run towards the city. This is what churches do. Churches give the people little bits and pieces to learn to cope with the problem. And I have to tell you, our God is much bigger than that. When do we learn in America coping is not the right word? Psychology is not the right word. Jesus Christ is the right word. He's setting the captives free. This is why you see people, they go to all the big concerts, they raise their hands and they get all excited. And two hours later, they're a total emotional, psychological mess. They try to cope with the problems. Drown my problems out for a few hours with loud music. You can't solve the problems that way. It's not going to happen. For those of you who have been Wednesday night here, what was the key word? When the gospel is being preached, it demands an answer. God demands an answer. When you hear the gospel, God gives you the gospel. He demands an answer. There is no escape. You don't cope with the gospel. You respond to the gospel. You say, man, this is tough. Well, this woman is going to find out. Do I want to keep on living the way I live, or do I want to take the master's remedy? I love how Jesus does it. Because he knows the real need. 
He does know the real need. The woman only learned to cope with the problems. Look how the woman reacts. She responds very evasively. So Jesus says, hey, go, call her husband and come here. That comes out of nowhere. I mean, that comes literally out of nowhere. She's never sat down and said, tell me a little bit of your family history. No, he goes right for the kill. He's a girl. And listen, she tries to evade him. She says, I have no husband. That's only half the truth. It's true. And Jesus admits it. He said, yeah, in that you spoke the truth. It's half the truth. Notice how Jesus proceeds. It's, it's classic. It's absolutely wonderful. He did not condemn her or shame her or exploit her. See that? This is so beautiful. He simply states the fact and then let the truth stand all on its own. This woman is already in the corner and she knows it. Chuck Swindle has a wonderful commentary on this verses 19 and 20. I wrote it down for you. He says, oh, that's, she said, that's how we would in the 20th, 21st century respond. You know, when we get cornered. And listen to this, this is classic. Oh, you've been to seminary. You must be extremely smart. Let me ask you something I've always wondered about. How do you reconcile the great existential problem of God's sovereignty and the free will of man? Only in her, in her culture, the great debate revolved around the most appropriate place to worship, omnipresent God. Have you ever had people you wanted to bring into a place to see their desperate need, and boy, did they have a religious answer. They come out of nowhere. Do you believe in demons? Where does that come from? I believe in Jesus, you would say, correct? I know the other ones are available, but I don't believe in them. Jesus' response to that woman as she tries to get away from him is absolutely beautiful. Let's go and listen to that conversation. He said, you are right, I'm in verse 17. You're right in saying you have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. Listen to this. That discussion of the husband is over. That's too painful. She learned to cope with that situation. She doesn't want to touch that. Why? Her promiscuous lifestyle is not the cause. That's the symptom. So we always deal with symptoms. There is a deep-rooted problem in that woman's heart. And that's what Jesus goes after. Look at what he does. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Would you say that's a little flattery for a Samaritan woman to say that to a Jew? Remember? Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. But you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people are to worship. How does she ever come up with this idea? That was never the discussion here. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming 
when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. Remember, he's sitting with the woman at the well, Jacob's well, which is at the bottom of Mount Gerizim. He looks right at Mount Gerizim. And the woman wants to make sure that he understands they're worshiping over here. And in a woman's history, the Jews are wrong. But Jesus said, and here is the clincher, you worship what you do not know. Ouch. How many of you would like to hear that? Jesus speaking to you straight in your face. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know is referring to the Jews. For salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. Stop there for a second. Jesus is talking to that woman. How many of you have to agree? A lifestyle that has a resume you don't want to touch with a 10-foot pole. Jesus looks at that woman. He's talking to that woman. And he said, woman, do you understand? I'm here. I'm a Jew. The Father is seeking those who worship him in spirit and truth. Woman, you're about ready to worship him in spirit and truth. Up to this point, you have worshipped that which you don't know. But everything changes in a split second here. The woman is listening, and Jesus said, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. You need to understand, the Samaritans did only believe in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. They rejected all the other books, all the prophets, all the prophecies about the Messiah, they rejected to come. Because by that time, remember, they were separated and they tossed everything out. So she's referring to the Pentateuch and she's going to go into discussion. Jesus said, the Father God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. And listen what the woman said. I know that the Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. In other words, up to this point, she said, the woman said, we don't know these things. You don't know anything. We can argue where we worship, how we worship, whom we worship, where the place is. We're just arguing. We don't know. We can't settle that issue until the Messiah comes. Then we will know. That was the teaching. Jesus said to her, I who speaks to you, I am he. Remember Wednesday night? I am who I am. Can you say it in Hebrew? Brett is not here to, today, so 
Ech yech. Asher, ech yech. I thought you guys are Hebrew scholar by that time. Okay. I am who I am. Jesus uses those words. I am who I am. He's standing right before you. Notice that discussion. I give you a few little points you can take home with you. This is so wonderful. We're not going to go into the details of it, just giving you something to think about it. The physical location, which is the argument point here, of worship is never of primary concern to God. A temple is given for the benefit of man, not for the benefit of God. Why? It is a place where God's people gather and it serves to focus our wandering attention. When we come here, you should not be having things going on that takes your attention away from God. That's why we're here. This is why we take you out of the environment where you're so used to, like at home, things like this. We take you out of that. So when you come in here, the world should be outside and you're going to be able to focus. That's the sole purpose why brothers and sisters get together is to put our attention on Jesus Christ. Worthship. He is worthy to give our attention to and we help and encourage one another doing so. If you do that at home, if you have children, children run around, you get distracted, all kinds of different things can happen. The phone rings. I mean, there are a million things. The house of God should be a house without distraction. And if you have your distraction in your pocket, turn it off. You know. So, so because our... How many of you have problems with wandering in your mind? Yeah. So that kind of helps you here a little bit. So many Jews faithfully worship God when they were in captivity in Babylon. Daniel is a beautiful example. Just opened the window and worshiped towards Jerusalem in order to focus his mind. He couldn't see Jerusalem. But in order to focus his mind. In his mind, he was there. So it's that focus, you know. So the physical place and the location is not that important. We're going to have next summer in the camp out our service, Sunday service, at the camp in the evening. And uh, you're going to be in a different place to worship. But your attention is on the one who is worthy to be worshipped, on Jesus. The object of worship is Yahweh. That's why Jesus introduces himself. I am who I am. Woman, he is here. Well, I know when he comes, I shall know all things. You know? Well, I am here. You know all things? Well, he just revealed to her what she needed to know. Her real status, where she was, and how God can help her. Then the quality of worship is another one I want to look at with you quickly as we wrap it up. The quality of worship is directly linked to our devotion to God. Quality of worship has nothing to do with lights, with sounds. It's all great. I love all these things because it gives us a focus point, you know. Sometimes we lower the, the light in the sanctuary. If you are a very fundamental whatever person, you say, well, why, why do we do that? No, you, you can't focus around what's going on around you. You focus on where the light is. 
It all helps you to get the attention on the right spot. Not to people, but to focus. Look at the words. Think about what you're saying when you worship the Lord. Think about what you do when you're here. You know, you can think about a lot of things, but focus uh, your attention, the one who is worthy to be focused on, correct? The Lord wants genuine, spirit-filled worship 24-7. The Jewish people, the same time as Jesus was speaking these words, in Samaria of all places, okay, unholy ground for the Jewish leaders, as he was speaking to that woman in the Jerusalem temple, there were the money changers. The place was right, but what they did was wrong. See that? Our hearts and minds must be involved when we worship God. That's what means spirit and truth. Truth is compa uh, comprehended by our mind. And our mind will move our hearts and our spirit. So it comes from the inside out. So whatever we do. Notice the promise Jesus makes to the woman in verses 23 and 24. He says, But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshiper will worship the Father in spirit and truth. He's looking at the woman. He said, True worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. She just heard the truth about her real condition. Her spirit got stirred. How do we know? Read on how she reacted. She left the bucket, everything at the well. The physical condition, why she came, doesn't matter anymore. She went back and told everybody, the man who just told her about her whole life. She just got transformed. And then Jesus said, and the Father seeks those who worship him. The Father seeks those. Why do you think Jesus was sent to that woman? The Father was seeking her. The Father was going after sending his son, and the woman met the Messiah. When she got up in the morning, and when she got on a journey at noon to go to the well, did she expect that? We and I can get up every morning and we can just say, Lord, I love you, whatever you have. You put the worth-ship into God and you can meet circumstances and people which God is fully controlling. We may don't think so. If they're positive, God is always in control. If they're negative, we think God is not in control. God is in control. He's got a purpose for it all. Do we understand it? No. Did this woman understand it? No. Listen, my friends, don't learn to cope with your problems. Give them to the Lord. That's true worship from the bottom of your heart. Let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you. We need to hear those things. You are still the one who has all the remedies. You know our hearts, you know our life. 
Just as you read the mail from that woman at the well, you read our mail, you know exactly what's going on. And Lord, we know you love us so much. You want with us to be with you in a relationship that is not bound by a lifestyle that keeps us in bondage to a lot of stuff. So we just ask you this morning to reveal to us what needs to be laid at the altar, like Abraham laid Isaac at the altar. May we lay that which we love the most, what's the most devastating thing, may we lay it at the altar and give it to you. You may have revealed to some people today where they are, you speak to the hearts, may they be able to lay it at the altar an act of sacrifice because you're worthy of it. So you get the first place, not just today in our life, but every day, 24-7. And we thank you and praise you for it. In Jesus' name we pray. All God's people can say, Amen. Amen.